So let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, precious Lord, we lift up this time to you, ask you to lead and guide us by the, your Holy Spirit, whom you promised would lead us into all truth, and that knowing your truth, we might live in your freedom. And we pray together the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, so we're on the second session of this journey. Last week, if, if you, some of you were here, and maybe some of you caught it online, um, we talked about the nature of God and how important it is for us to understand what God says about himself. Because there's really, quite frankly, an awful lot of people who have opinions about God that say God will do this for you, God will do that for you. And um, we need to really understand what God says about himself so we can have a right understanding of God. Otherwise, uh, we can we find ourselves facing disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, because we had expectations of God that he never... Uh, he never promised. He never intended for us. So if you did not catch last week's lesson, I do uh, encourage you to try to grab that online. There were some technical issues, so it's kind of in two parts. <laughs> but uh, And then there are some questions and answers, so it's not as long as it looks like. Is it? That's, gonna, that's over an hour long. Well, there were a lot of questions at the end, so um, which were all good, and you're welcome to, to listen to the questions as well. So tonight we're going to talk we're going to kind of enter into an historic understanding of the faith. I've always felt it very important to understand something, to, under, to understand its history, to see where it comes from, how it develops, what kind of, of cultures and languages contributed to become what we now know as the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church um, the, the Catholic faith is extremely ancient. Tens of thousands of years it goes back to the very beginning of man's search to know God, man's desire to know God. So we actually begin our journey uh, thinking about early man, very ancient man. And so we ask ourselves the question, it's a good question, what do we know about early man. And as it turns out, not much. <laughs> In fact, I read recently that if you were to take, you know, all of the bones of early man, you know, we have all these different kinds of, of early human, you know, human remains that, that, that paleontologists study. And if you take all of those bones and put them together, they wouldn't fill the back of a pickup truck. So we, we just don't have a whole lot of record of early man. And it turns out that as most of what we knew or thought we knew about early man when I was younger and went to college uh, has all been turned on its head in recent years. In fact, when, when I went to school, we had this little chart, and some of you may have seen this little chart, you know, and you've got 
kind of a, a, an ape-like creature, and then there's another, and, the, and you know, it kind of grows, and it gets to modern human. And, and that was, you know, that was what I was taught when I was uh, going to college, when I was going to school. And as it turns out, most of the, the pieces along that line, like the Neanderthal man, the Peking man, um, because of genetic studies, we've, we've redefined ourselves so much because of, gen, because of genetics, and they're able to actually do genetic studies on these, these ancient remains, we discovered that they had nothing to do with humankind. They, had, they were a completely different species. Neanderthals are completely different species. They're, they are not our ancestor, per se. We'll talk about that a little more later. Peking man's not our ancestor. It's, it's, that, in fact, when we study what ancient man was like, I, I heard one paleontologist recently say it was kind of like Middle Earth. You know how in Middle Earth you've got elves and dwarves and, um, I don't know, goblins and, I don't know, and, and men? You know, you've got all these different species kind of running around Middle Earth together at the same time, forming alliances or fighting each other or whatever, that that's what, that's what this world was like 100,000 years ago. You had several different, what they call them, hominid species. Not humans, but very much like humans. Higher primates or whatever you want to call them, but, but they were not related. They're they, uh, they separate species. And it's interesting that when we look back at this time period, the human family, what we are, for tens of thousands of years was consisted of one single family. That humans were one tribe, one clan, one family for tens of thousands of years. And we know this through genetics, as they test genetics in, in people all over the world, and they can find where our common ancestors were. And so from about 250,000 BC to about 100,000 BC, it was one family. That kind of throws a whole new light on who we are and how we came from. And, it, and it's kind of interesting that of all these different hominid species, if we're the Neanderthals, the Pekings, the Forensis, which are really short people, they're like tiny little people, all these different hominid species, uh, many of them, like the Neanderthals, were bigger, stronger, they um, had at least larger cranium capacities. I don't know if they had, a big, had bigger brains, but their, their heads were larger than humans. But only humans survive. We are the only species of this, these, this large number of species that, um, that survived. And it wasn't because we were bigger or stronger or smarter. So what made the difference? There is actually only one characteristic of humans that sets them apart, not only from all the various hominid species of 100,000 years ago, but of every species on the planet. There is one human characteristic that no other species has, and that is humans pray. 
humans pray. And if we start thinking about, well, what's the, the evolutionary advantage of prayer? I don't know. But this is the thing. The difference between humans and everything else is not biology. It's spirituality. Mankind has a spiritual nature. Mankind prays. Mankind seeks to know God. We are hardwired to search for God. And it is all humans everywhere. If you go into the smallest tribe in Amazonia to, um, you know, you know, the, the, um, the, Mago the Mongolian nomads, you know, living in their yurts, to everybody else in the planet. All humans pray. All humans seek to know God. There is deep down inside us a hardwired search to be reunited with an unseen God that we don't understand that we know is there and our lives are driven by that you know um, between human and chimpanzees chimpanzees are probably our closest primate neighbor and between humans and chimpanzees we share 98.8% of the same DNA that's why I say and, and this is interesting I remember this because when I, was, when I was younger, I remember reading an article about Jane Goodall. She was all, remember Jane Goodall is the, the, the monkey lady? She was so excited because she had observed a chimpanzee using a stick to collect ants. And she's thrilled that she actually says that, that, you know, that the chimp is using a tool. And I think the very same week, the U.S put men on the moon there is such a vast chasm between humankind and everything else and the difference like I say is not biology the difference is spirituality humankind humans were made <clears throat> in the image of God. We were made in the image of the Creator. And that creative spirit embodies mankind and nothing else. It's amazing. So oftentimes you, you, you hear people getting upset about evolutionary theory and things like that. And I just don't think that's that I don't think that's the issue because the issue really isn't our biology the issue really is we were created in the image of God now there's a biblical record of early human history and that's actually the first 11 chapters of Genesis and if you've ever tried to read it you probably bailed at some point because you get tired of seeing of reading all the begats there's this, one of these lengthy string of genealogies. We'll touch on that just a little bit. 
But these first 11 chapters of Genesis express to us man's earliest history, man's earliest search for God. And it opens with a song, the song of creation. That first chapter of Genesis is a song. If you read it carefully, you see you've got a verse and a chorus, a verse and a chorus. So you've got this little introductory recitative where you have, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get this, the beginning, the first verse of the song, and there was darkness and God separated the light from darkness and there was evening and morning the first day. And then there's the next, and there's the next verse. And it goes, and there was evening and morning the second day. It's like a little verse and chorus. It's a song of creation that was sung by early man from the beginning of time. We don't really know where it came from. See, one of the things that we notice about particularly these, these first, first few chapters of the scriptures that deal with early man is, is these are not Bible stories. We think of them as Bible stories because we're taught them as Bible stories as a kid, right? But the truth is, is that they exist in every culture, in every religion, religion all over the world. All over the world, they have, the, you know, one version or another of these stories that we have in these first 11 uh, chapters because this is the tale of early man, long before they began to divide up into the, um, the Semitic peoples and the Indo-Europeans and, and, uh, and the Asians and all the different classifications of peoples. That, this was back when humankind was one family. We were one family for 100,000 years. But one of the things that's interesting about this song of creation is two things in particular stand in stark contrast to many pagan cosmogenies, they're called, stories of creation. Two, one of the things is, a couple of things are very unique about this one. And the first one, and the first unique characteristic is that it gives the world a beginning. If you studied, you know, Hinduism or some of the uh, Middle Asian religions, you hear the, about the wheel of time, that everything just keeps cycling over and over again. And this was the common, um, th th that concept really doesn't originate in India, it originates in Chaldea, and, there's, and, and that's a very, very ancient concept. And you can see how ancient people, you know, the ancients could just sit there and, and look and observe, and they could start to come up with ideas about how the world works and they see the change of the seasons and they see, you know, the foliage being born and the foliage dying and, and being reborn and they begin to begin and to create a cycle of nature concept of cosmogony or creation of the world. And that was a very common pagan concept. Yet in Genesis, there's nothing. God creates the entire universe from nothing. And suddenly it's there. The light is separated from the darkness and the light begins to expand throughout the universe and to grow and to thrive and to become stars and planets and, and plant life and, and animal life. It all begins to grow from that one little seed of light. Now what's interesting is that that was that concept of, of creation was pretty laugh, was actually laughed at throughout the world until the mid-20th century. 
And actually, earlier in the 20th century, there was a Jesuit priest by the name of Georges Lemaitre. He's, a, he, he's from Belgium. What does that make him, a phlegm? I don't know. Anyway, he's from Belgium. And he was not only a brilliant priest, he was also an amateur mathematician. And this, of course, is in the early days of the discovery of of, of nuclear science, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, all of these, these personages who are discovering the essence of the world, the essence of the cosmos. And so he's reading the first chapter of Genesis and he begins to develop a theory of this primordial atom. It's called the atom. And at this point, you know, early in the 20th century, we weren't exactly sure what an atom was. Niels Bohr, one of the great fathers of the discovery of the atom, called it plum pudding. But anyway, <laughs> but he begins to develop this theory and he works it all out mathematically. He takes it to Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein himself. And they sit on a train and they go through all these equations and Einstein goes, well, I, I can't argue with your math. It all looks very good, but, but there, there are some real, like some religious undertones to this. We don't want to have religious undertones because only in Genesis is there this concept the world starts from nothing, from this primordial atom and then spreads everywhere. And so it was pretty much laughed at really until the 1950s when two scientists from Bell Labs discovered the background cosmic radiation. And they renamed George's Lemaitre's theory from that of the primordial, primordial atom to the Big Bang. It all came because a mathematician read Genesis and said, if, this, if, the world, if the universe started from nothing, it must have been like this. But that doesn't mean that 100,000 years ago, early man was a, was a great, mathemat great mathematicians or scientists, but they sought God and they experienced revelation. They understood revelation. They understood knowledge from God and they put it into a song. And the second thing that stands out that's different about the song of creation in Genesis between, uh, again, most pagan religions of antiquity, and that is in the end, God looks at everything and says, it is good. In pagan religions, everything's not good. There's good and there's bad, and the, and the two forces are always at war with each other. You see this uh, particularly in uh, polytheism. When you look at, at the great the pantheons, the, the, God, the pantheon gods of either Hinduism or of, of, of Greece or of Rome, and you see that there are good gods and there are bad gods. And they're always fighting each other. They're always at war with each other. There is not a sense that everything that is created is, in fact, good. That's a very basic understanding of Catholic faith. And it comes from this song that's 100,000 years old. Everything God created is good. It's not a yin and a yang where the darkness and the, and the light are all kind of intermixed, in, in, intertwined with each other. There is the light, which is God. And there is the darkness, which is the absence of God. And in fact, if you study this thing in physics, 
Darkness doesn't exist. It's just the absence of light. There's no substance to darkness. It's just a shadow. So there's two things come out of, of this, this beautiful song in that first chapter. One, that God created everything from nothing. The time had a beginning, which we now know is true. And that everything he created was good. So then there's a second story. And this one's, this one is truly amazing. And that's what we call the Garden of Eden story or the, garden, the story of Adam and Eve. And I'm going to read just a, a, a bit from the scriptures here, uh, from Genesis chapter 2. A mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there, there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a lot of times we try to connect these two stories, the, the song of creation from Genesis 1 and, and the Garden of Eden from Genesis 2, they actually are two separate stories. So don't stress too much trying to, to get them to fit together. But in this story, it's all about this garden. Next, it's a grove of trees as we're talking about, right? It's all it's this grove of trees and, it's, and Adam is created there in, in this grove of trees and, and God gives him a woman because he says it's not good for man to live alone. And so man and woman, they, they have a job. They're tending, their job is the gardeners. They're taking care of this grove of trees. And man is given a choice. There in the center of the garden are the two principal trees, the only two trees that we have a name for. And these two principal trees are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then, of course, we know the story. Eve is deceived by the serpent. She succumbs and she eats the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam follows her. And immediately, they are infected by two things. Not that not, they weren't infected how they were expecting to be infected. They may perhaps they expected to die. I mean, that was their idea. Because God had said, if you eat this fruit, you will die, right? So perhaps they were expecting to die, but that's not what happened. At least they didn't physically die. But what happened is they were infected by fear and by shame. And so they try to clothe themselves and they run and they hide from God because they're now consumed by fear and shame because they have partaken of the knowledge of good and evil. In some cultures, particularly in Babylonia, 
when this story is told, mankind is seen as living with the animals, living among the animals, running around naked like an animal. Animals don't know they're naked, right? They don't realize it. They don't care. I mean, you can put little tutus on your chihuahua, but they don't really care. And but then he is enticed by a woman, by the woman who is not named in that, and that's uh, the epic of Enkidu, by the way. He is, he is enticed by the woman, and he is taught civilization. He is made, he's become, he is civilized by her. And you know that he's become civilized because they begin to grow wheat and grapes. They make bread and they make wine. In the biblical story, it's the knowledge of good and evil. But we see that there becomes a separation from innocence to guilt, from innocence to fear and shame, from innocence to the quest for civilization. And interesting, in the Babylonian uh, um, version of this epic, the epic of Enkidu, it's the fall of mankind is treated as a good thing. Because now we can have civilizations, we can build cities, we can build armies, we can have conquests, we can build empires. So it's, a, it's, it's the fall of mankind is treated as a good thing. The fall of innocence gives them the capacity to, to steal, kill, and destroy. And perhaps in our own society, we may think, well, you know, maybe this is also, maybe this is a good thing because it's given us access to technology in so many ways that we have of manipulating and controlling one another and eavesdropping on one another. We have forsaken innocence. Now, one interesting, about, interesting thing, fascinating thing to me about this story is that the oldest temple in the world, it's about 12,000 years old. So 10,000 BC, right at the close of the most recent ice age, men began building a temple after the pattern of the Garden of Eden. And if you look at photographs of what's being excavated, it's in southern Turkey, the biggest one called the Gebleki Tepe, which means potbelly hill, because it's up on this top, this big hill. And they're excavating this, and you see these stone effigies of trees. And all along, and, and on all of these trees, they've carved images of, of animals. You've got birds up in the branches, right? You've got um, scorpions, you've got creepy crawly things going up and down the trunk. On one of them, they've got this, this, um, this lion or uh, some panther or some, other, some kind of big cat crawling down the trunk. It's, it's actually quite intricate. We are talking about carvings that are 12,000 years old. And so you, you have, but you have all these trees that are in concentric circles and in the center are the two principal trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There, so what does this tell us about, again, early man, man 12,000 years ago, this story of the Garden of Eden is their ancient liturgy. 
You know, worship has always been about recalling God's interaction with humankind. You think of the Passover meal, you know, you go to a Jewish home and they celebrate the Passover, and it's a reenactment of the crossing of the Red Sea. You take the hyssop and you dip it in the salt water and you recite, I forget exactly what they recite, but as the hyssop is dipped in the salt water, so the children of Israel brought through the Red Sea to the promised land. You know, but it's a reenactment of the Exodus. We call it the Exodus story. Even in our own liturgy, we are, it is a reenactment of the Last Supper, isn't it? I pick up the bread and I say the exact same words that Jesus said in the consecration of the bread. I take the chalice, the cup of wine, say the exact same words that Jesus said as he consecrated the wine at the Last Supper. It is a reenactment of that event, of that first Eucharist. And actually we see it as a sacrifice because the Last Supper was the, 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 prescient, the prescient enactment of his passion. It begins his passion narrative. And so we reenact that in our worship today. An ancient man in places like the Gebleki Tepe and there, are very, and there are several others, although they're smaller, all in that region of, uh, of southern Turkey and Syria and Iraq, there are these identical places of worship. We have the two big trees in the center, the concentric circle of trees all around. And we don't know exactly how they worship there, but we know that this is obviously the story that they reenacted in that grove of trees. Interestingly, in these ancient temples, there's no idolatry, there's no idols. Their understanding of God was an invisible spirit kind of like, you know, the Native Americans' understanding of a great spirit. And that's really kind of what we, we talk about God. God is spirit, right? And we see God, again, as, as a spirit that embodies everything. So there's no idols there. And in fact, we talk about the relationship between Native Americans and these. When you look at the pictographs on, on, uh, carved into these, these trees, they look very much like a Native, like Native American art. And in fact, we talk about 10,000 BC, that is the exact same time that tribes are making their way across the Bering Strait Ice Bridge, becoming the Native Americans, are, are moving at the same time, so they're probably related people group. And this was built when mankind was still a hunter-gatherer, before they even began to have agriculture. Agriculture had not been invented. This is so very ancient, but here's why Here's why it is so critical, why it's so key, why this became the center of worship to them. Because there are several things that we learn from the Eden story, and this is what probably made up this very ancient religion, which eventually becomes the Catholic faith. And that is one, that God created mankind to enjoy a special relationship with him. There were a lot of animals in the garden. There was a snake in the garden. There were a lot of animals in the garden, but only man received the breath of life. Only man was made in the image of the creator. Only mankind walked with God in the cool of the day, conversed with God, enjoyed that special relationship with God. 
In the garden, in the center of the garden, there is the tree of life, which is a veiled promise of eternal life. That God's intent for mankind is life, and life forever. God gave in the garden, man had dominion over all the other animals and the trees and everything else in the garden. Man had dominion. That's why when you look at the Gebleki Tepe, you see all these carvings of animals because in the garden, man was given dominion over all the creatures of the earth. But then, Man lost his innocence. Man embraced the knowledge of good and evil and became separated from God, at least in his soul, in his mind, his will and emotions, man became separated from God. But at that very time, on that very day, God promised a redeemer. God promised to save man from the destruction of the fall. And he does it when he curses the serpent. This is interesting. When he curses the serpent who deceived Eve, this is what God says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals, Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the Messiah. This is the first promise of Jesus. This is the first promise of redemption. To this day, <laughs> I had to take my little grandson up here and show him this. When we see the Blessed Virgin, you notice what she's standing on? She's crushing the head of the serpent. Now, a lot of times people ask me, so who's supposed to crush the head of the serpent? Mary or Jesus? And the reality is they both are. They both have to. It's a joint deal. And in fact, it's kind of a three-way deal because we're supposed to get in on it with them. Because what made mankind subservient to the serpent submitting to his deception and living in disobedience of God's very, very simple command. Don't eat that tree. It's not good for you. <laughs> and what broke the fall, what restored mankind to union with God was obedience. Disobedience broke the relationship Obedience restored the relationship. And so Mary is the first who has to take that step of obedience. In fact, in comparison, in com by comparing Eve and Mary, and in fact, Mary is referred to by the church, early church fathers, even as early as the second century, 
as the new Eve. The first Eve brought us into death. The new Eve brought us into life. Christ being the new Adam, the first Adam bringing us to death, the new Adam bringing us to life. So when we compare Eve with Mary, we see that Eve was deceived and she disobeyed God. But Mary, she listened to the truth spoken by the angel and she gave the angel her fiat. She gave God her fiat. Let it be done to me according to your word. That step of obedience crushes the head of the serpent. And in other comparisons with, with Mary and Eve, <coughs> Eve listens to the serpent and Mary listens to her son and she tells all of them at the wedding, do whatever he tells you. Eve became the natural mother of all the living and Mary the spiritual mother of all the faithful. In this story, it's very, very ancient and was the central focus of worship for thousands, tens of thousands of years. We see the announcement that the enmity is between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I mean, that in and of itself is uh, a prophecy of the virgin birth. It's the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. And as Eve was, and as we talk about, you know, the first Eve and the new Eve, we have the first Adam and the second Adam, the new Adam, which is Christ himself. And we see that Adam was a son of God. Did you realize that? He didn't have a father except for God. He, but he was God's created son, not his begotten son. Adam was the created son of God. Jesus was the begotten son of God. Adam, of course, disobeyed. And Jesus, he crushes the head of the serpent when in the garden of Gethsemane he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. His voluntary obedience to his father, again, crushes the head of the serpent. The first Adam rebelled in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, the new Adam, submitted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not always like this part of the story. Adam blames his wife. Did you notice that? When Adam, when God says, and then said, what did you do? And Adam says, she, it, she did it. It was the woman you gave me who did it. But Jesus took on the sins of the world. And as Adam was cast out of gar the Garden of Eden, Christ becomes the gate. Christ becomes the way, the path into the new paradise. This ancient, ancient story celebrated in places like the Gebleke Tepe 12,000 years ago and, and many other. This is foundational to the Catholic faith. This is where it begins. Now, for those of you who have questions about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, obviously everybody wants to know, what about all the begats, right? How come... How can we have to live through all the list of genealogies?
just demonstrating how ancient these stories are. You know, we get bored by the begats. We get bored by the genealogies. But, you know, if you live in a world like Middle Earth where you've got a dozen different kinds of, of hominid species that live around you, being able to prove that you are human, that your father is human, your grandfather is human, your great-grandfather, being able to prove your humanity becomes very important. An ancient man memorized these long lists of genealogies. But actually, there's also as a place in the scripture where it talks about the Nephilim, the giants, the giants of the earth, non-human species where, the, um, where, they took, uh, they, where they took human women among them. And in fact, as we now know, Europeans, I think most of us, Europeans are about 4% Neanderthal. Our DNA is about 4% Neanderthal because there was some intermixing between Neanderthals and humans which the scripture talks about 50,000 years ago. And interesting, Africans are less than 1% because the Neanderthals didn't get that far south. But there's one other character which I'm only going to briefly touch upon, and that's Noah. We all love the story of Noah, right? Noah and the flood. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah. Brother Noah built the ark. You know that song? You know that song. It's a, it's a Sunday school song. That's what happens when you raise Protestants. You learn these songs. Um, again, all I want to say about that, this story, because it's really not that critical in uh, the development of the Catholic faith as those first two creation stories. It's not a Bible story. The story of Noah and the ark exists in virtually every culture on every continent on the planet. Whatever, whatever this story was, this great flood, obviously, whatever caused it or however it happened, was it the, the parting of the uh, pillars of Hercules and the flooding of what is now the Mediterranean Sea, you know, um, or further north, the parting of the Dardanelles, creation of the Black Sea. But there was something happened that created this tremendous flood. And remember, all of humanity is one family at this point. It's a very small group of people. And virtually all the stories come up with the same thing. It was a man and his family and his animals that escaped in a boat. This, it's not a Bible story. It is so very ancient that we see it in North America and South America and Europe and Asia. Everywhere you go, this story is told. A little different, the names have changed but it is obviously the same story. And like I say, it doesn't have a lot of impact upon the, the centrality of the Catholic faith like these two creation stories do, but everybody's always wondering, was there really ever a flood? Was there really a boat? Something happened that was of enough significance that everybody in the world remembered it, <laughs> whatever it was. And that basically is my, my I talked a long, longer than I thought I did, my walk through early humanity. But to see the Catholic faith being created not 2,000 years ago with Jesus, which is significant enough, but tens of thousands of years ago, early man, 
through his understanding of God, began to develop the concepts that are foundational, that God created everything from nothing, that everything God created is good, that man has separated from God, but God promises on that very day, God promised a savior who would be born of the seed of the woman. So great stuff. So we do have some time. I can open it for questions. Yes. Many of them don't do that. Let me see if I can turn this on. There we go. So I'll leave you the microphone. You can hand that to the next person who has a question, and I'll repeat your question. That there are so, humanity is hardwired to pray, but there's so many who don't want to pray. But here's the thing if they don't have an experience with the true God, they make one up. How many times, how many people do we know who don't believe in God, but they pray to the universe? They pray to the creation instead of the creator. We've seen that. And we see intentional attempts to um, create a state God. Roman emperors wanted to declare themselves to be God and put Christians to death because they refused to acknowledge the emperor as God. In the last century, the Soviet Union and Communist China want to create the state is God and do away with God. But they have, but, but, the, but pe people are, 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 we're hardwired to find God. And so totalitarian regimes and throughout history have tried to establish themselves as God and it's never worked well for them. Yeah, but man needs a God. We know deep inside our being that God is there. And again, of course, you know I'm a combat veteran. You know, the, the easiest way to cure an atheist is to put him in a combat zone. <laughs> they start learning how to pray real fast. <laughs> and that's not, and that's not a, you know, I mean, it's kind of a joke. There are no, there are no atheists in foxholes, but that's really true. <laughs> Any other questions? I want to give her the mic. So one question, one um, comment to what Vicki just said is that just gives, makes the responsibility to us who know the one, who know the one true God to pray for everybody, right? To pray because for... So that put, they would seek truth and find truth. Not just to pray for them, to, but to be able to present God to them in a way they can understand. That's true, too. And see, this is, this is one of the reasons for the discovery classes, is that God has been presented in such a way that, that people give up on it. They, they, they can't conceive of God. You know, so many people, you know, a lot of preachers who will talk about these first 11 chapters of Genesis has been spend their whole time trying to prove they're literally true. But that's not the point. Literal, the literality of the Bible is not the point. The point is these 
key understandings that are taught to us. That God created everything from nothing, that everything is created good, that man has separated from God, but God has promised a redeemer. I mean, that, those, that's what's important. Not to try to date this or to place a, uh, make, make a literal interpretation of it. Yes. I have another question. I mean, I actually have a question. So how do we know for sure that there was no idol worship in ancient liturgies like that one in um, that temple with the trees? Why do we know? Why are we saying there was no idol worship anywhere at the same time? Just because it hasn't been found? There are no idols in the excavations. The excavations have produced no idols. There are no idols there. And in so fact, when idolatry... Did idol, when did idol worship begin? What? Uh... Idol worship began between three and 4,000 BC. How do I know that? Because I've studied. Okay, so I guess I'm going, I'm not, I can't do the whole thing, so I need to do another class. <laughs> I'll need to do another class on the origin of idols. And, uh, and actually, if you go, if you do my Bible studies on my website, you'll actually hear that discussion. But I ought to redo it. A class on the, because I've got a special class coming out on uh, theological implications of quantum mechanical theory. And then I also will do a, a class on the origins of idolatry and where that came. But about, about three to 4,000 BC. We are a whole world of idol worshipers now. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting how that came about and where it came, you know, how and why. Absolutely. And okay, when, so I'll do another special class. On the origin of idolatry, you all will be able to catch that online. Um, as I'm being able to get stronger and can do more, I'll be able to get these special classes put online. Other questions? Yes. Yes, I'll, I'll uh, send out an email. We'll go out in my e-blast, e which you probably aren't getting emails right now. <laughs> so, yeah, but I'll get that out. Mm -hmm. Cheryl will give you a call, yeah. We grew up in New Mexico, and the culture there was, number one, um, men didn't go to church. Mm -hmm. They were not really taught that there were women you would see many women in church on Sundays, but not men. We had God in a little box, like you said last week. And we all grew up like that, you know, because we didn't really understand what our parents, I guess, didn't understand what their parents were trying to raise them. But talking about idols, uh, they had great belief in idols. And to me, that was very sad. I experienced several occasions of idols, idol worshiping. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was like they kind of incorporated it with a religion. Yeah, well, in New Mexico, you would have the influence from the Hopis, but also, um, you know, a, a lot of Mexican influence, the Toltecs, the Aztecs, that, um, in which there was a great deal of, of idol worship. And... The Catholic faith, as it has spread around the world, has always assimilated parts of the culture into which it's introduced. And so that's why in some parts of the world you see the Catholic Church 
and there's more emphasis on on statues and things like that because it's incorporated you know, and and the um, processions with statues and all because it's incorporated a lot of um, the way worship was done before that. But even you know in European Catholicism incorporated a great deal of uh, European paganism. That's why we have Christmas in December, right? It's on the feast of the Saturnalia. And there's, and there's always been this assimilation that takes place. And that's not bad. It just happens. We always have to realize that that's just an assimilation of a cultural thing and not the core of Christianity. It's not part of the Catholic faith. We need to see what is the Catholic faith and what are all the little peripherals. Um, in uh, my, my daily mass this morning, I, I live streamed from home. We talk about praising God with dance. And that's one of the, we did Psalm 150. And um, there are a lot of cultures, that's the way they worship is by dancing. And, that, and, in, the, and in the Catholic church that's in those cultures, like, uh, in, like in places like Cameroon, where dancing is part of their worship, the priest is required to dance through the entire Eucharistic prayer. It's got to be exhausting. But that's what they do. Because that's their culture. Even on Our Lady of Guadalupe, you see the, the picture of her, she's dancing. Because that was the Aztec way of worship. So there are cultural expressions that are assimilated into the Catholic faith, and that's okay. But there's the core of the Catholic faith. And that's where we need to focus. Any other questions? All right. It's almost 8 o'clock. We're doing better than last week. And uh, so let's close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed truth to humankind, even thousands and thousands of years ago, you are revealing yourself to humanity. And they're recording what they have learned from you in this, this book that we now call the Bible. We thank you that in these ancient stories, you have revealed to us that you created all things and that all things you created are good. We thank you that you have promised us a redeemer. And in fact, you sent your Messiah to redeem mankind from sin and to establish in mankind the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. We thank you, precious Jesus, for the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. We thank you for the fiat of the Blessed Virgin. We thank you for the obedient submission of Christ even to death on the cross. And we join ourselves to that fiat. We join ourselves to that submission in our own lives, submitting ourselves to you in all that we are and all that we have. And so let us pray together the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.